James 1, 5 through 8, listen to this. This is God's word. You can bank everything on it, everything. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that it speaks into our lives. We know, Lord, that your word is living. We know that your word is active, and we're learning that over and over and over. Because, Lord, you don't just look at what we do on the outside. Your word and your truth actually go into us and examine our motives. All so that we might see you as the one who knows all things, as the one who has all power, and as the one who is all gracious and loving. So we ask, Spirit, that you would continue to work in our lives, work on our minds, work on our hearts, bring us to Jesus again and again, that we might see you, Jesus, as our Savior, our only hope. We do pray in your name. Amen. So last week we looked at the first four verses and I tried to summarize those four verses in this way. Pressure is a privilege. Remember that? Does that sound somewhat familiar? We're gonna, we're gonna continue on that same trajectory this week with verses five through eight. And here's the roadmap of where we're going today. So we're thinking about pressure as a privilege, even if I don't say that again in the rest of the sermon, at least have that in your mind run around because all these verses are, are linked together. So here's where we're going, roadmap today. Connection, wisdom, and God. We're gonna talk about those three things. Connection, wisdom, and God. All trying to think about this idea of pressure is a privilege. Connection, wisdom, and God. So let's start with connection. You do realize that the Bible meets us in the world we're living in, right? The Bible meets us in our lives, in the world we are living in. The first four verses kind of give us a framework for understanding the things that all of us will inevitably face. That is trials. All of us will endure them. All of us will face them. They are real and ever-present. That's what it means to live in a fallen world is that we will face trials. We will suffer. And verses 1 through 4 tells us that suffering is to produce something in us. It's supposed to produce endurance. It's supposed to produce overall maturity and make us more like Jesus. That's the purpose of trials. They, trials are not meaningless. They have deep, profound meaning for people like you and me. Something is happening. God is at work in the midst of our trials. And that means that what God is doing is something that is powerful and something that we need. Now these verses this morning, five through eight, they get us into the nitty gritty of the trials. 
They get us into the nitty-gritty of verses 1 through 4. Verses 5 through 8, they take us into the trenches. They take us into the foxhole. And it may not be a place that you want to go. And I understand that. But that's where we're going. Verses 5 through 8 put us in the middle of our trials. You know, the place where as you're enduring trials and enduring suffering and going through challenges, remember trials are that outside pressure that comes in and cracks us open so that our deficiencies and inabilities are exposed, our inconsistencies are exposed. Remember that? Well, verses five through eight takes us into that and wants us to think about that when we get cracked open, when we get exposed, and when our inconsistencies come out and our deficiencies. You know those times when you go through trials where you're not really sure exactly what's going on? The, the places where you just feel like you're numb? You ever been there? The place in your life when you go through a trial in which you think, maybe I'm in the shadow of death right now. It's that place where you have enough realization to recognize, I am on the precipice of being bitter long term. Or I'm going through such a trial that I am being tempted to focus on myself and how I am the victim of everything that's going on. Ever have that temptation? Or in the midst of the trial, you think, you know what, this is just where I need to depend upon myself and I can overcome this, I can outlast this. It's that place where that temptation is real. It's the place where hope seems to be equated with just being absolutely overwhelmed. So you're not exactly sure, do I really have hope because I equally feel overwhelmed? Been there? It's the place where we come to the end of ourselves is the point. It's the places in our lives, through the trials that we go through, where we come to the end of self and we have nothing left. We don't know what to think. We don't know what to feel. We don't really even know what's going on. All we know is that I'm at the end of myself. And that is exactly where verses 1 through 4 and 5 through 8 meet. Did you see it? How does verse 4 end? So that the man may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. And how does verse 5 begin? Let him who lacks. Do you see it? Verses one through four give us the overarching framework and five through eight take us in. They take us into the trenches. They take us into the middle of the trial, the places that we don't like to go. The place where we're at the end of ourselves and we feel that we lack. And when that happens, when we're at the end of ourselves and we feel that we're lacking Guess what it is that we're looking for that we don't always know we're looking for it. Guess what we're looking for. The second thing in our roadmap, wisdom. Wisdom. 
When you get to the end of yourself and you can't fix it and you can't gut it out and you can't, your pride isn't great enough to overcome it. When you get there, what we're looking for is wisdom. Now, this is where we gotta go really deep. So I hope you're willing to go with me. This is the best that I've got. I don't know what else to do except to just keep going down, to keep digging down. You see, it's not the type of trials that we go through that produce maturity. It's not the type of trials that we go through that necessarily produce endurance. What trials do is that they actually expose our underlying assumptions. When we get to the end of ourselves, what actually is being exposed in those moments or for those seasons is all the assumptions that we bring to our lives. It's all the assumptions that we bring to life. It's our operating system, what is really the thing that we are building our life upon. When we come to the end of ourselves, what's actually happening is God is saying, do you recognize what you are assuming about yourself and about the world and the people around you? Do do, do you recognize what your operating system is when you get to the end of yourself and you don't know what to do anymore and don't know what to think and you're not even sure how you're feeling and what you're feeling? When you get there, do you realize that I'm asking you to look at your underlying assumptions and your foundation of how you process everything? I read this quote from C.S. Lewis and he said this, something to this effect anyway. In the ancient world, the biggest question of life was, how can I conform my soul to reality? That was the biggest question. How can I conform my soul, the deepest part of who I am, how can I conform my soul to reality? And the answer was wisdom. In the world in which we live, The biggest question is, how can I conform reality to my agenda? The world that we live in right now, the world that we operate in, what we think about regularly is this is reality, but how can I change that, move that to fit my agenda, to fit my plans and what I want? And you know what the answer is? Techniques and methods. And friends, you know that this has unbelievably infiltrated the church as well, right? Here's, here's five steps to have a better marriage. Here's, here's seven keys to singleness. Here's 10 ways to get God to bless you. We've changed everything into a technique, everything into a method, because that way we can conform reality to what we want, right? If I can just master this technique, I can take this method, I can take this technique, work it out into my algorithm, plug in the right things, and then I'll get the result that I want. 
Sound familiar? This is how we can read and study the Bible, and all we look for is principles. Because we want to take those principles out, we want to moralize everything, and then we get the result that we want. In other words, I'm trying to say we struggle with this very temptation of wanting to take reality and figuring out how it can conform to my agenda and what I want. And if God is the best way to control my life, then I want God. If I can take his principles and use those methods and get the result that I want, then God is the means to my ends. It's only a problem. That's not really Christianity. That's just self-help. That's just self-help cloaked with some Christian language here and there. That's not Christian. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity at all. Wisdom is skill at living. Wisdom is figuring out and knowing what to do when things aren't black and white because there's so much gray out there, right? How much of your life is not just simply right or wrong, like, I don't know, 95 plus percent of it? So much of our lives is trying to figure out how in the world do we make sense of this? What should we do here? What should we do there when things aren't super clear? Because life is that complicated. Things aren't just super simple. Wisdom. Wisdom is learning how to see all of reality is about God's purposes and God's glory. Wisdom is skill at life. Wisdom is character. And if you just allow me a sidebar just for a moment, because this may not, you may not think this is a direct connection, that's fine. That's okay, I just want you to chew on this. For all of you out there that love the Enneagram, and you love to read that stuff, and maybe you've even seen Bible studies that are based upon your Enneagram number, and look, I'm saying this as someone who is a partial five and a partial two, and I have a little bit of eight or nine in there. I just want you to understand those type of personality things can be somewhat helpful in understanding a little bit about your life, but they don't define you. And if you were to crack open Jesus, especially when you read him in the Gospels, if you were to crack him open, you wouldn't see him with an Enneagram number. You would see that he is wisdom. Wisdom is what we lack. Wisdom is what we need. When we come to the end of ourselves, what we need is wisdom. And what this text tells us is we need to ask for it. Did you see that? If anyone needs wisdom, let him ask. So ask God for wisdom. But it also says this. Let him ask without doubting. Did you hear verses 6 through 8? Take these in again. 
But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Does, does that sound a little harsh? Really? It, it may sound a little harsh. That means we gotta dig in and understand what he's saying because this can be really misused. And it has been. What does it mean when God says, let him ask in faith, but let him ask without doubting? Let's start here. Statement I read a number of years ago in a book. Um, Faith without doubt is like a body without antibodies. You know where a body gets without antibodies? Super sick. Our faith needs to pursue questions. Doubt in and of itself isn't bad. It's good to have questions. It's good to work out our faith. It is good to receive the tough questions and try to figure out how to answer them and what does God say about whatever question we have been asked. That's really important. Questions are good. Even some uncertainty is good. It's a sign of health. Asking questions about what you believe or receiving questions about what you believe is really important. Pursue those. You won't grow without them. We all need to be questioning and thinking and wrestling, right? But we also need to understand this. We can't forget that there won't be a day of our lives where we won't have to fight the desires of the flesh. Not a day. We are tempted to fulfill the desires of our flesh every single day. It's true. And by God's grace, we learn to say no to what God doesn't like and what doesn't please him and what he says isn't good for us. And we learn to say yes to what he says is good for us and what pleases him and and fits with how we were made and created. But we won't go a day without having to fight the flesh, not a day. And we'll never get to the point in which we are immune from doubt or immune from trials not this side of Jesus' return. That will be part of our lives. It's part of what it means to live and understand and grow in what it means to follow Jesus. So what in the world is he saying here? If I can question and if I can be uncertain and if I can wrestle with my flesh, and if I know that I won't be immune from the pull of trials and the pull of doubt for my life, what in the world does he mean? He actually tells us in verse 8 with this little phrase, double-minded. When he says, ask without doubt, he is saying, asking, he's saying that we should ask God for wisdom without being double-minded. And you may say, well, what does it mean to be double-minded? Well, literally, it's two-souled. Someone who is two-souled. Well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like this. Y'all ever been down to the coast and seen the water when it was serene and placid, beautiful? 
And then you know what it's like to look out the water when the wind is blowing and to see water go one direction and the wind change and it starts going the other direction. Do you know what that looks like? That's what it means to be double-minded. That's what it means to be two-souled. That's what James is talking about when he says, ask without doubting. He is saying, there is a difference between Growing in your faith and understanding what it is you believe and working out what you believe and facing questions and having to answer difficult questions and realizing that your heart has multiple loyalties. There's a difference between realizing that there are idols still at work in your heart that compete for what God says about you and you recognize that and you take that to God and confess it and say, Lord, you are my Lord, but man, Building my identity around my job or my bank account or my skills or my relationships, man, that's really hard. I feel that pull. There's a difference between recognizing that your heart has divided loyalties and someone who says, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, plus whatever this is that I think will work. That's what it means to be double-minded. That's what it means to be swayed going this direction one day because God seems to be doing what you want him to do, but this seems to work over here. So it's God plus this, whatever works. That's what James is talking about. He's talking about someone who doesn't really know who God is and doesn't really believe that God will do what he says he will do. And if you're here this morning and you're wondering, well, who in the world is God and what does he say he's going to do? I'm glad you asked because the text tells us that, doesn't it? This is what this text tells us about God. Who is God? Look at the text. What does it say? God is a giver. Do you see it? God is a giver. He gives. He gives generously. You know what that means? Simply. It's like a child. And you know that I love children. I love little children. I remember when my kids were little, I used to love it when they would be playing with a toy and they'd come up to me and they would give me the toy. And guess what? When they gave me the toy they were playing with, there were no strings attached. There was no debt incurred. They were playing with the toy and they saw me and they came to me and just handed me their toy. Simple, giving. That's God. He gives simply without strings attached. He gives simply, generously, without putting you in debt. He just gives and he even gives without reproach. Did you see that? Without reproach. This is what that means. Not only does God give generously, but he doesn't give this way. Yeah, I'll give you wisdom, but you really should have asked for this two weeks ago. Yeah, I'll give you wisdom, but man, you should have seen this coming. Anyone ever struggle with giving gifts like that? How about giving the gifts of advice like that? 
This is telling us that God is a giver that gives simply and without strings attached, without us incurring debt. It means that God gives wisdom in that way. So when you're going through the trial and you're suffering and you've been cracked open and all the assumptions of your life and what you're living, really living on are exposed and you've come to the end of yourself and you can't even explain what's actually going on, what God is doing is saying, you're at the end of yourself and what you really need is wisdom and I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you generously and I'll give it to you without saying, You should have seen this coming. Two quick things about wisdom. The first one is this. The starting point for understanding wisdom really is realizing that all of reality is a story. And it's processing your life through that reality, through that story. And that story has four parts. And that means no matter what you're going through, the underlying assumption of your life should be that I want to see reality the way God sees it. And he says it's a story and it has four parts, creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. That means when I go and going through my trial of realizing that I have cancer and dealing with that, I take that suffering and that trial through that four-part story. And what that looks like for me and what I'm trying to do is this. God created the world and it was good. He didn't create the world. He didn't create me to have cancer. But guess what? Mankind rebelled against God and brought sin and death and disease. And that means that because I live in the world and because I rebelled against God when Adam and Eve did, that I am going to have all the consequences and effects of what it means to live in a fallen world. It's not because God is angry with me or he's trying to get me or he's trying to get me under his thumb and just crush me. It means that I'm living in light of the truth that the world is broken. And I am too. But Jesus has come. And he has done everything to defeat sin and death. Which means I'm not only forgiven, but I will be healed. Do you believe that? I am going to be healed. Whether it's in this life or the next, I can't tell you. But I can tell you that one day I'll be completely healed, completely. And if I'm healed temporarily now, I'm still going to die. But one day, God will raise my body, as he will you. And we're going to live in a reunited heaven and earth. And we will have bodies that are fit for eternity I'm looking forward to that. So I have to process whatever I'm going through through those four part, the four-part story. Do you see? Because it matters. But this matters more. The second thing about wisdom is this. Wisdom is a person. Wisdom is a person. And that means that when you go through trials and when I go through trials, guess what? We get to take someone with us. 
as we go through trials. Because the platitudes and the things that people will say, they just don't quite get to the core of what it's like when you're really suffering and really going through things that are hard. And there are many of you who have suffered and are going through much harder things than I. I know that. This is not about me, although I'm included in this. I'm there with you. But we get to take a person with us when we go through suffering. And his name is Jesus. Do you see, Jesus isn't, he isn't someone that you look to as just being an amazing example, someone who's just there to help. He is our overarching reality. He is all-encompassing. He is our life. And when I go through suffering, when you go through suffering, Jesus is there with us. We are not alone. He suffered spiritually. He suffered relationally. He suffered physically. He suffered in every conceivable way. Do you see, beloved? Redemption comes through suffering. Jesus suffered in all of those ways to absorb the wrath of God, to endure it all. So that when we go through suffering, we're not alone. He's there with us. And that means that when you look at Jesus as your all-encompassing reality, when you look to Jesus in those moments when you are going through trials and you are stumped and at the end of yourself and what you really need is wisdom, what we really need is Jesus. And in those moments and in those seasons and in those years, the power of the cross and the empty tomb explode into our lives and remind us that we are loved and remind us that we've been paid for and remind us of what is most true and remind us that Jesus is there. So as much as we take Jesus with us into our suffering, we begin to realize, hmm, it's actually him that's going, that's taking us with him. He's actually taking us in and through all that he has done. 